morning. It is Thursday, April 23rd, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus outbreak in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse every weekday morning at 9 a.m. here on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and on our Facebook page. Today on Community Pulse, we're going to review the science on the experimental use of the drug hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19, which is normally used to prevent or treat malaria. Joining me, as usual this morning, is Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters, which airs every Wednesday here on KOPN at 6 p.m. Good morning, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tim. Thank you for joining me, uh, hosting me this morning. That's so um, such a, um, a valuable service that I appreciate you being a part of. Um, so I am looking for the uh, email that I sent you this morning. There it is. Um, so, you know, there's we've done one of the things that's happened over the last uh, 48 hours is some initial data about the effectiveness of certain drugs used to treat hydroxychloroquine. I mean, to treat uh, the COVID-19 disease. Um, and there's been a lot of hope that um, a new uh, drug uh, uh being brought to market by the company Gilead would be helpful. And there's, of course, been a lot of um, hope that maybe hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, which are two drugs that have been used for a long time for the treatment of malaria and more recently for the treatment of autoimmune rheumatologic disorders like lupus and arthritis, that they would be helpful in the treatment of this disease. And so far, those have been disappointing, and I wanted to spend a little time talking specifically about the disappointing news we've gotten um, about uh, hydroxychloroquine so we can be a little bit more specific about what the science means. Because I know there's a whole lot of politics, so sometimes there can be more heat than light in a topic like this, and I just wanted to spend a little time with it. So, But first, I want to go through the numbers as my um, um, a little bit of a ritual so that I'm trying to not be so numb. Uh, globally, 2.7 million cases, lots of folks in the world um, are being affected by this virus with 183,000 deaths, 740,000 people have recovered. But when you're looking at recovery versus deaths, um, we're, it's looking, I, I'm thinking we're way under reporting the cases because it's looking like about a 15 to 20% uh, mortality rate. And I think that we all know that it's way less than that. We're trying to argue about whether it's somewhere between 0.1% and 4% is what we what the smart people seem to be thinking, but I don't think anybody thinks it's that high. And since we're probably not um, over-reporting the deaths, we are almost certainly under-reporting the cases. Um, in the United States, we have 849,000 cases with 48,000 deaths. So there were 3,000 new deaths um, yesterday up from 2000, the interval before then. So I don't think we can say that as a country, we've reached our peak yet of deaths. 84,000 people in the United States have recovered. In Missouri, bringing things closer to home, um, we have uh, uh, 6,279 cases with 243 deaths. And uh, yesterday I reported that we'd seen this little surge in hospitalizations. Uh, it is a very difficult metric to follow because it's voluntary reporting through the Missouri Hospital Association. Not all hospitals report, and some hospitals report on some days and not on other days. So it's a really 
difficult metric to follow, but we'd seen a little surge of a couple hundred new um, hospitalizations um, yesterday, um, and we did not see that, see an additional ongoing thing. So that may just have been a reporting lag or something. We're not sure what that means, but it does not seem to be an ongoing concern. In Boone County, we had a new case, uh, so we're up to 97 cases, still one death. But some of the surrounding counties, specifically Saline County, um, is up to 106 cases. Montauk County has 33 confirmed cases, but there are 21 likely cases. These are people who have symptoms of COVID disease and have a known contact with a lab-documented case. So those people are not being counted as for sure cases, but um, and so they're not being reported in some of the um, you know, it's like the question is when you see these numbers, how deep do you want to go into what these numbers actually mean? And um, apparently there has been a change in the last month or so of the policy about whether positive cases are getting reported to local county health departments or whether they're being reported directly to the state. And they have moved from being reported to the county to being reported to the state. And it sometimes can be difficult for the state to be clear about which county they're in. So some of these county numbers are difficult. It's interesting to see the rise in Saline County, which yeah. is uh, more of a rural county, right? That, right. That's uh, west of Boonville, where uh, Marshall and, and Arrow Rock is in that area. Do we have any idea uh, about that yeah, I rise? I, I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So that... There are many rabbit holes a person could go down, and that is one that I did not descend this morning. Um, <laughs> but but I have a lot of curiosity about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we um, know is that there really isn't a rural-urban um, divide in this virus. We saw that initially, and I think a lot of folks who lived in the country felt somewhat protected by that. But I think what we can see is especially when some of these rural um, employers have um, challenging working conditions where people work close together in close proximity, um, uh, that especially in places like meatpacking plants um, and where the pay is low and the rights of the workers are limited, it can be really difficult for people to effectively advocate for their own safety and for um, employers to feel that they need to be responsive to their employees. So um, these are complex issues and, of course, race race and uh, uh, socioeconomic status, immigration status, um, all uh, factor into this, and it's, it's a complicated thing. But you know, it gets down to being simple if we'll all um, do our part to do the physical distancing, staying home, staying out of buildings we don't live in, uh, wearing masks when we absolutely have to go to these places, um, and the really hard, tragic places of limiting attendance at funerals, at uh, weddings, at graduations. Um, These are hard things that I know that people are really having to make difficult decisions about, and I admire all of my neighbors uh, who are doing that, especially the ones who are not sure that this is really the big deal that um, some of the folks in public health are saying it is. I really admire people who are doing that. Um, so then I wanted to get into the um, the study that has been um, cited a lot. So first of all, I want to say that it has not yet been published, nor has it been peer-reviewed. So it is not supposed to be quoted in the media as definitive, nor is it supposed to be used to change clinical decision-making, which is a nice idea, 
And yet here we are all trying to make clinical decisions um, about how to treat people who are sick with this illness. And we're using the best data we have. But um, there is a process of peer review where people who do um, scientific research, medical scientific research for a living, spend a lot of time coming through what's published, ask lots of questions, the authors have a chance to respond. And all of that is a process that typically happens before any of the rest of us see any of the data. But Harvard University has a website where they publish pre publication um, data and uh, with the disclaimer. So, so there are many disclaimers about this. So the other disclaimer is that it's a retrospective study. So an ideal study is one where we decide at the beginning, okay, um, we're going to uh, randomize people who come into our hospital next with COVID. We're going to randomize people to whether they get uh, hydroxychloroquine, hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, which is the antibiotic that's in a lot of people are familiar with getting a Z-pack if they get bronchitis or a sinus infection or not getting either drug. Um, and I don't think that anybody is recommending, I haven't seen anybody recommend using azithromycin by itself. I'm not sure why, but that was not part of the study. So, um, but this was not a randomized controlled trial. This was a retrospective trial. And that is they went back into patients' hospital records who had been treated with one of those three arms, hydroxychloroquine by itself, hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin or neither drug. And so what we don't know is whether um, the decision-making on the part of the clinicians and the patients, the doctors, nurses, and their patients and their family members about who would be treated would change uh, outcomes if we had done it randomly. So it's possible that people, it's interesting that more black people got neither drug than white people. And the people who got either drug um, or both drugs um, were more likely to be a little bit sicker. Their respiratory rates were a little higher. Their temperatures were higher. And some of their other lab tests indicated that they were a little sicker. And so it's always hard to know then whether the outcomes are because the people were different at the beginning or because of the way we treated them. So there are some statistical ways to address that, but it's not as good as randomizing them. But uh, what we found was that um, people who were treated with hydroxychloroquine were a, a little bit more than two times as likely to die as the people who were not. Um, and that is larger than the difference we would expect based on their being sicker to begin with. And again, all of that is a statistical modeling mathematical thing, which is not as good as randomizing people. Um, and so this is really disappointing uh, research. I think um, many of us, regardless of our politics um, and our response to whether we thought that uh, elected non-scientific um, folks should be promoting a medication, um, that I think we had all hoped that it would actually be effective. There was also a, and I haven't looked specifically at the um, the details of this, but there was a uh, interventional study, the went randomized trial that was started in Brazil and was stopped because um, whenever we do these trials, there are people sort of behind the scenes looking at the outcomes. Um, they are not supposed to directly interact with the folks doing the research, um, but they're supposed to be looking to see whether there's some really terrible outcome that we're missing that should make us stop the study. And that that's whatever that uh, criteria was, was triggered and that study was stopped. 
apparently there's an ongoing study at Vanderbilt University that I have not been able to find information that it has been stopped. Uh, also a randomized control trial that started in early April. So um, right now, uh, our best guess is that this is not going to be the treatment that pulls us out of the the real concern that we have about this virus being so challenging as far as um, having such a high death rate. So do we so know? Talked, yeah, do we know ahead. why hydroxychloroquine was chosen by the FDA to be um, authorized to use for this purpose? Was there data indicating that it, that it was promising? I don't know that it was approved by the FDA to use in this way. So um, well, drugs the, are easy. According to the study, it says they authorized emergency use of this drug oh, okay. when clinical okay. trials are unavailable or unfeasible. Okay. So I don't know okay. why. Mm-hmm. Um, but often the uh, people who are doing studies can get FDA approval to use a medication in an off-label way. So drugs are approved by the FDA for use, and they usually they are approved for a specific use. And many of them are then used for other things because that's not illegal. Um, patients are supposed to be informed that it's an off-label use. But honestly, the there are often many off-label uses that have a lot of clinical laboratory, I mean, clinical scientific support, but the drug company may not go through the process of actually getting FDA approval. So it's this real gray area sometimes. I see. But, I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the original. I don't know where the original idea about using hydroxychloroquine came from. A lot of the um, press attention to it came from a family physician who was treating uh, folks in his community in the New York City area who had a lot of his uh, patients were sick at home, not of, most of them not sick enough to be hospitalized. And he apparently had heard of this as a possibility, treated a lot of his patients with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And his impression was that people had responded well. Um, he was quoted as saying that it was 100% effective, which I, um, anytime a physician is willing to say something is 100% effective or 100% safe, my um, suspicion antenna come up anyway because boy, this practice of medicine is humbling and nothing is 100% in my experience. Um, uh, so... And and that was even early in the course, and that was when he still had five or six of his patients were still in the hospital, some of them on ventilators. And so because they hadn't died yet, he was saying that it was, you know, presenting preventing 100% of fatalities. And I haven't followed up to find out whether we know the outcomes of the rest of his patients. And because it's a small number, we probably shouldn't be told to protect the privacy of those specific people. But... So that was the preliminary storytelling that got a lot of people to say we should be giving this to everybody and everybody should have it. And some people were taking preparations of hydroxychloroquine that was prepared for use in fish tanks. It also had some other things in it that were perhaps not safe for humans to consume. Okay. So based on anecdotal or observational evidence is, right. what, is what it sounds like. And Yeah. I don't know where that physician got the idea to use it. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, so this is um, 
a concerning thing. The other thing that's a little concerning to me is that now in Missouri, we have a handful of documented cases in prisons around the state. And I don't think that's going to go well. Um, uh, We cannot, folks who are in prisons and the staff who work there uh, can't socially isolate. They often have limited access to soap and water. Um, They often have limited cleaning of their toilet facilities. We don't know whether this virus can be spread through urine and feces, but we know that the virus is in fecal material. So, And it's just in general a good idea for people to be able to not share those substances with each other. Um, and, uh, I think that, um, my, I have two concerns. The primary one is that folks who are, well, I have a gazillion concerns is that, um, you know, we have people incarcerated usually for, um, a specific specified term and that then they would be expected to be released in the community. And when we have a potentially fatal illness running through, prisons, then some of these shorter sentences become ineffective death sentence. And I don't think any of us feel like we ought to do that. The other thing is that these are sources of infections, spread of infection through our communities. And then that um, staff go in and out, attorneys go in and out, the uh, inmates go in and out to our court system where we can't like keep it confined to a prison. Uh, and the third is that when um, desperate people are afraid of dying, then we get prison uprisings and um, riots, and that puts everybody at at risk. So I think that many of the people who we have currently incarcerated are at more risk to the public, keeping them in the jails and the prisons, than they would be released to the general public. Right, and I've seen many, many calls for, and in some cases, examples of uh, prisoners being released um, certain segments of prisoners um, just to reduce the population in prisons. Right. And often that's a really slow process. You know, sometimes we'll hear that a particularly high profile person, somebody commuted their sentence, and it's often six to eight months before they can actually be released. And I'm hoping that we can make this system work more quickly um, in releasing folks who um, need to be out so that they can be safer. Right. I remember reading early on, uh, Iran, the country of Iran, released thousands of, of prisoners um, because they were facing a, a very severe outbreak in their prison system. Uh, something like mm-hmm. that happening in the U.S. seems kind of unimaginable. Yeah, and I think that the the concern I have is that we won't do it until it's actually, it's actually you know, the, the timing is important. We, we're going to release people into the general community, which I think we should do. We should do it before they're infected for uh, for so many reasons. Like, if we're going to do it anyway, it was sort of the conversation I was having with the folks of the, the school board folks who, before we had closed the school, was like, we're going to close the schools. Let's do it before it's, you know, the, the, the sooner the better. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So those are my thoughts this morning. Tim, what thoughts do you have? Well, I'm just thinking about the... Uh... It seems like there's hardly enough political will to have stay-at-home orders. I don't know if we would have the political will to to start releasing prisoners. Um, yeah. I hear you. Yeah, I, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the, the stay-at-home orders are being released, so Cole County has released theirs, and I just want to tell people that we're now into you know personal responsibility time. We always have been, but mm-hmm. um, there, it, just because the... the um, 
our elected leaders have decided to release these orders. That is no obligation for anybody to go get their hair cut or their nails done or get a massage or go to a movie or um, go to a bar or a restaurant. Um, it is still an option to take to carry out. And um, yeah, right. I suspect we'll see a lot of people holding back to wait and see what unravels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, I will look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thank you again. And um, to, thanks to, the, to our listeners. And um, I hope everyone can stay well. Thank you so much, Dr. Alleman. All right. All right. Bye. Once again, we were speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. Please join us every weekday morning at 9 a.m. for more news and updates on the coronavirus outbreak here in mid-Missouri. Thanks for listening to your listener-supported community radio station, KOPN Columbia. Coming up next is an abridged version of Background Briefing, followed by the Ralph Nader Hour and Fresh Air with Terry Gross at 11. The time is 921. We'll see you soon.